0: I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. To the book of Amos, we're in a series that we started last Sunday, looking at a book of the Bible that is filled with doom and gloom. I hope you're having a great summer morning. Uh, It is one of the saddest uh, passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, and yet we believe here at Village Bible Church that it is important that we hear from God in the good passages and also the difficult, hard ones. And what I want you to know is that while uh, chapters 1 through almost eight and a half of, of Amos are doom and gloom, the last verses of the book remind us that God is a faithful God, God is a caring God, and God is a God who loves his people and has an awesome plan for their lives. We just got to go through eight chapters of doom and gloom, to get to that wonderful picture, but I want to remind you amidst the storm clouds that we're going to be a part of uh, over these next uh, five more weeks as we're in this book, uh, we will get to a glorious ending, and we will once again see how great and awesome our, our God is in his love for us, his people. If you weren't here last week, we opened up the book of Amos, and we learned that Amos was a man who seemed totally unqualified to serve as the prophet of God. He was uneducated. He was a shepherd and caretaker of uh, trees. And so there was nothing in his lineage that would say that he should be a prophet preaching or proclaiming the oracles or the words and thoughts of God. And yet God would call him out of that role and call him to go and to preach to the two kingdoms of the people of God, Judah and Israel, about their sin. But in chapter 1, we see that he doesn't address Judah or Israel at all. In fact, what he does is he preaches to the six people groups or nations surrounding Judah and Israel. And in many ways, scholars believe that what God is doing is God is creating a target where he's starting to put rings around the target closer and closer because the bullseye of the target, the text of Amos, is all about Israel and Judah and their sin, and their unwillingness to follow God. But chapter one begins, by dealing with all of the enemies of God. And I wonder if Judah and Israel were sitting there and they were saying, yeah, God, they're evil. You tell them how evil they are. Yeah, God, they're sinful. You tell them how sinful they are. Uh, If you had siblings in your house growing up, you know exactly how Judah and Israel were feeling when you remember back to the days when your sibling was getting into trouble with mom and dad and they're yelling at them in your room and you're like, yeah, mom, dad, get them. Really, yeah, yeah, and you wanna go going and tell them, hey, do you, you haven't talked about this infraction, let me tell you. And so, so here Judah and Israel are sitting back and they're loving chapter one of Amos. They're loving that the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people are being called out. It is really easy for us in the church to get excited when we read words of judgment and condemnation to the culture around us. And we say, yeah, God, you go after them. They don't go to church. Yeah, God, you go after them. They don't follow your ways. Yeah, God, you go after them. Well, that's exactly how Judah and Israel were feeling. The God that they thought was on their side was bringing uh, wrath and his indignation upon the enemies of theirs. But all that would change in chapter 2. All of that would change as we open up our passage this morning, because the judgment wasn't just going to come to the pagan nations, the judgment wasn't just going to come on the enemies of God, but in fact, the judgment and wrath and indignation, they were so excited to see uh, the nations around them receiving, was now going to fall in their lap. In chapter 2, Starting in verse 4, we see God turn the tables, and I think that Israel and Judah are going to experience a sense of whiplash this morning. They thought this all this judgment talk and all this condemnation talk was fine when it was outside of the area code, but when it comes to their front door, there must have been stunned silence when Amos shared these words. I wonder if some, as they uh, as Amos read these words and said, "This is what God says to you, Judah. This is what God says to you, Israel." If there was stunned silence, if there was even maybe a response, wait a minute, Amos, do you know who you're talking to? We are the people of God. God won't do this to His people. Surely we haven't been as bad as those guys have been. Well, we're not perfect. We don't sin like them. And yet what commences, starting in verse 4, is what scholars say is some of the harshest criticism that God gives to anyone in all of Scripture. And it's not to godless pagans, but to the covenant people of God. Now that should take us a little bit of sobering up, if you will, when we hear that as the church of the living God, recognizing that God is serious about obedience when it's called to all people, but God is especially concerned about the obedience of his people, that we who know his words and have experienced his grace and his mercy, that we might turn a blind eye to the things of God and follow the ways of culture." What Amos is going to share, Peter would share to the church some years later, almost uh, eight centuries later, in 1 Peter 4.17, Peter tells the church, the time has arrived for God's judgment to begin, and its beginning takes place first in his own house. It is good and right for us as a people of God to recognize that God is a loving and kind and merciful God. But God also, as loving, as kind, as merciful as he is, is a God who is radically jealous for his holiness and the holiness of his people. And he begins to call out the covenant people of God. And so let's look at the words that are before us in Amos chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, you can uh, find the passage uh, in our Pew Bibles on page 765, and I'll be here for the entirety of our time, so you don't have to worry about turning from here. But Amos chapter 2, starting in verse 4, says the following, and we'll get a judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and then we'll get a judgment starting in verse 6 to the northern kingdom of Israel. Here's what the Lord says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four... I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept His statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I'll send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, and who were as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not... Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you, you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy, behold, I will press you down in your place. As a cart full of sheaves pressed down, flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides on the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, a difficult passage. One that we don't get to to shy away from or skirt from, because this is written to the people of God. And while, Lord, there's much that we can learn from this example, we need to recognize that today as well, that we stand before a God who longs, who in fact demands our holiness. And so, Lord, I pray that through the example of these men and women of Amos chapter 2, that we might see that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that because of that, Lord, we might turn and we might ask and seek your forgiveness. That we might be zealous for your will and plan for our life instead of our own. And so, Lord, teach us the great many lessons that this passage has to offer. And I ask, Lord, that we might leave different than when we came in for your glory and for your namesake alone. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, there's nothing more scandalous in all of the world than a Christian who falls, a person who has proclaimed Jesus Christ in their life, a person who has committed themselves to uh, the religious experiences and told their friends and family how much Jesus means to them, how much the Bible uh, has sway in their life, only to have them fall to some heinous or gross sin. It seems that when that happens, people's eyes begin to perk up and people's ears begin to get excited about hearing the scandal that comes that a person so devoted to the things of God and to the person of God would forfeit all that they've preached and all that they've taught for a sin. We see these types of falls in the lives of so many in the Old Testament, and we see so many examples of it as well in the times of the New Testament. It's even worse when a pastor falls. We don't have to look very far here in the Chicagoland area to see a couple of the most major churches, well-known churches who have had major failures by their pastors, and the culture loves it. They see the hypocrisy in it. They begin to recognize and feel that because of this fall, that that they themselves and their disbelief and and their unwillingness to follow the ways of God now have some sense of satisfaction that this is all a joke. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have no doubt felt the sting of someone close to you, or maybe yourself, experiencing a fall of this kind. But what we're talking about this morning is not the fall of one person, or not the fall of maybe a small group of people, but the spiritual free fall of an entire nation, a group of people who have said over and over again to their neighbors and to their enemies that they are God's people who go through all the rituals and all of the, uh, the things from an external standpoint, they look really, really good. But we need to remember that God doesn't look at the outside alone, but also the inside of a man. His thoughts, his feelings, his ideas, and what the true self is saying about what he wants to do and where he wants to go. And God reveals a totally different picture when it comes to his covenant people. And what he says is, that the people of God in Amos' day, eight centuries before Christ, were in a spiritual free fall. And because of that, in their unwillingness to make the changes that were necessary, God's judgment was coming. Now, he starts out the passage, notice, like he did last week. He begins to bring the accusations. Twice he will say the phrase in verse 4 and in verse 6. For three transgressions of Judah, and then he says it of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, remember last week what that meant. If you weren't here, what Amos is saying is, is God has had enough. Enough is enough. God's patience has run out and judgment is coming. And what it means is, is God has been standing and watching, and he's seeing transgression upon transgression upon transgression, and he is sick of it. He's tired of it. This is the mom who, at some point in her day, just grows tired of the kid's behavior and says with a exasperation, enough is enough, I've had it. And that's not said in a nice little mousy voice. It usually comes with a gravelly, baritone tone. You have gotten on my last nerve. And so God says, your sin has been ever before me. And instead of turning to me, instead of following in my ways, you've gone your own way. And you have the gall to tell me to let the others have it. You have the gall to tell other people that I am your God. And you are my covenant people. But you don't live the way that you need to and so notice this morning a couple things that we need to understand number one as we read this text remember this when it comes to any kind of interpretation in the bible when we read the bible never forget this we are reading other people's mail we're reading other people's mail And so what we're reading is we're reading the mail that was sent to the mailboxes in the 8th century before Christ that Amos sent out to the people of Israel and Judah. And we went into one of their mailboxes and pulled out Amos' letter and we opened it up and we began to read what the correspondence was between Amos, who was a representative and speaker of God, and to the people that were living during that day. Now, we need to recognize that when we read these things, not all of it will apply to us. Some of it that God is going to do is going to have direct implications to the moments that they were living in back in the day. But there are truths that we can generate from this text that will help us now in the 21st century as followers of Jesus Christ. Now why do we do that? We learned last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire to sin as they did. And so, this is here for our example as Christ followers, as people who are prone and tempted to do the very same things that they did. These serve as examples so that we are reminded that we don't want to test the hand of God by following temptations and sin. And so, there's a lesson a lesson of asking the question Am I in a spiritual free fall? Am I having the mindset that I'm all right with God when God says we're not at all right at all? There are four lessons I want to learn from this morning about how not to fall as these people did, and I want to take the negative and turn it into a positive, hopefully, to serve as preventive measures for us so that we might now fall into the same predicament as these people did. So there's four things I want to look at this morning. How do we keep from free-falling spiritually? Number one, we need to be elevating God's word to its proper place. It involves elevating God's word to its proper place. Notice in verse four, for the transgressions of Judah, what are they? Why is the punishment of God coming? Notice what he says, because they have rejected the law of the Lord. That word rejected means to despise or to refuse, to cast off as something that's not pertaining to to one's life. Can I just stop and ask you this morning, is that true of you with regards to the Word of God? Do you see the Word of God as something that can be rejected and cast off, not pertaining to your life? Now, right away, I'm going to imagine you've all shown up here today, not, um, you haven't been uh, coaxed or or uh guilted into being here you came in your own free will so i'm going to imagine that god's words important to all of you but let me ask this question because the people of god in amos's day would say no we love the law of god we order our lives according to the law of god and so you can't say that we've rejected it but god does because God recognizes that just simply going through the motions and being around the things of God and His Word isn't good enough. The life of following God is not gained by osmosis. It takes far more. And so let me ask you this question this morning. Are we under the same indictment that we reject the Word of God? Well, let's, let's take some tests here. Write these down. Test number one. Take the delight test. Take the delight test. How much do you delight in the Word of God? The psalmist says numerous times how he delights on the law of the Lord. Let's get down to bare bones on this thing. Delight. Do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy reading the Word of God? Do you enjoy your time in the Word of God? Or is it a drudgery? Is it far easier for you to turn on a a TV program or a sporting event than it is to get into the Word of God? Be careful because you are on the cusp of rejecting the law of God. Is it the last thing that you can think about doing? If there's nothing else going on, well, maybe I'll read the Bible. Is it only when bad things happen that I'm uh, violently pushed into this scenario of having to read the Bible? Or do we delight, as the psalmist says, on the law of the Lord? Do we look forward to it? Are we excited to engage with it? Let me ask you this delight, and I I recognize I am by no means an eloquent speaker, but are you already cashed out of this sermon? Are you already finding yourself saying, okay, you know what? i got things to do. When is He going to be done? Or is it God speaking through His Word and I delight to hear it? Where is your delight with regards to the Word of the Lord? Because you may be rejecting it and not even knowing it. Number te- Test number two. How about the direction test? So you've got the delight test. How about the direction test? The way they rejected it is they did not see it as important for their lives. And so the direction test comes from the Scripture that reminds us, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so there's this idea that the Word of God is going to direct me in the way it should go. And so let me ask you this question this morning. And I'm not doing so in a legalistic way, saying, I've got it all figured out, and now I'm condemning you. I'm saying we all need to ask these questions. And so how much did the Word of God direct your decisions this last week? How much did you think through as you were making your decisions in the comings and goings of life, what does God's Word have to say about this? You see, they rejected it as not, to, not pertaining to their lives, And so we say, well, what can a book that was written 2,000 years ago, what can it say for me? How is it going to help me to figure out what I'm going to do this week? And if we're not allowing it to light our path, then we run the risk that we're rejecting the Word. How about dependence, the test of dependence? Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. if we need a light for our path, then we live in darkness, right? Then we're lost without it. And so it begs the question this morning, if we are truly lost, as the Bible says, futile in our own thinking... In need of direction, in need of someone to come and meet us each and every day, then what does it say that many of us this morning are opening the Bible for the very first time since Pastor Tim last week told you to open it? Because I know the things I depend on food and water and air I need all the time. I was working yesterday out in. It wasn't altogether hot, but we were working pretty hard, and I hadn't drank water for a while, and someone brought me a big uh, gla- or a, a cup of water, 32 ounces of the thing. And it was ice cold, and I'd been working for some many hours without a break, and I downed that thing. I couldn't get enough of it. It was spilling over my my cheeks and, and my lower jaw onto my chest and I was drinking it up. Why? Because I'm dependent on that water. And the question we have to ask is do we drink up the Scriptures like that? Because we are so thirsty for it. If that's not where you're at with the Word, be careful. You may have rejected the Word already. The final test is the just do it test. And that is, are you simply a hearer of the Word? Or are you one who does it, the book of James says? Maybe you're in the Word and that's great. And you enjoy the Word and you love the Word and that's awesome. But then when the rubber meets the road, you're doing something else. This is what we're going to see of the people of Judah and Israel. They knew the Word. They, they, they were under the Word. But as soon as they left the hearing of the Word, they went and did their own things. And, and some of the stuff is, quite frankly, gross. Stuff that was unbecoming for the pagan nations around them. And maybe this morning... You're in your devotions, you're in your small groups, you're, you're studying the Word, you're listening to worship music when you come and go in the car. You surround yourself with all that, but you've got this little sin, you've got this pet sin that, that, that no amount of Scripture reading has changed you. No amount of devotionals. because at the end of it you're a hearer of the Word, but you're not a doer of it. So test yourself this morning. Are you like the people of Judah who have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes? Now this is what happens. Amos is phenomenal in this. Though he was not educated, uh, he had some, some real smarts. And of course he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says something that is so absolutely true. He says the following. But their lies have led them astray. Many translations take that word lies and and, and it's the word idols. And it it makes sense then because it's those lies, those idols after which their fathers walked. And you see what happens is, is when we're not in the word, there's a vacuum that's created in our life. And someone is going to be our delight. Something is going to be our direction. Something is going to be our dependence. Something is going to be what we do. And so when you're not in the Word and you're wondering, why do I go after these things? Why is my life not the way it should be? Ask yourself, have I created a vacuum that allows for other idols, other things, other lies to fill in the gap? We need to be people that are in the Word. Not just simply listening to it, but making sure we have not rejected it in the comings and goings of our lives so that we may honor God. And so the question we have to ask this morning as an example that's been given to us is, am I elevating the Word of God to its proper place? We are to taste and see that the Lord is good in the way that we see that most emphatically is through His Word. They had failed to do so, and God's judgment was coming, and it would destroy, it says, the strongholds of Jerusalem with fire. God gets angry when we don't listen to His Word. And that makes sense. Parents, have you ever told your kids, listen, son, daughter, I don't want you to do this thing Because in doing this thing will create great harm and great difficulty in your life. Only for them to say, yeah, yeah, mom, dad, I gotcha, I gotcha, gotcha. Only then to go out and to do the exact opposite of what you've asked of them. How many have had, I don't want you to show hands, your kids may be sitting next to you. But the anger and the frustration and the heartbreak that comes, I told you exactly what to do in that scenario, in that moment. And instead of doing it, you shook your head to me and say, I got it, I got it, only to get up and go and do the exact opposite. That's what we do when we reject the Word of God and go and do our own thing. And yes, God is going to be angry. Number two. To make sure we're not falling into a free fall spiritually involves eliminating the things that trip us up. Amos acts as a prosecuting attorney and he speaks to Israel. Now this would be offensive to Israel because remember Israel's the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom. Remember there's a civil war that has broken out, and now they are two Groups of people, two nations in one, uh, what used to be one unified nation. Like I said, this is the 1860s of Israel's history here in America, right? The Confederacy and the Union. And imagine this, Amos is in the Confederacy and he brings words of judgment and condemnation to the north. That's what Amos is doing. He resides in Judah, and he goes to Israel, the northern kingdom, and says, God's coming after you. And the people of the north must have been like, who are you? What makes you think you can speak? You're not one of us. You're one of the enemy, quite frankly. But this is exactly what Amos does. And what he's going to declare to Israel, starting in verse 6, is quite frankly pretty ugly. In verse 6 he says the same thing, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment and he begins to talk about what they've done. Now I could go into great detail about what they've done but quite frankly we have such a spectrum of ages, I'm not going there. But I want you to know some of the most heinous and ugly things are recorded in the word of God here. And they have to do with some really bad stuff. Number one, selling their own people into slavery. Number two, oppressing the poor. Number three, engaging in gross immorality. In verse eight, perverting justice. At the end of verse eight, drunkenness and the mistreatment of spiritual leaders in their midst. Now, all of this, God has already gone over this. He's he's recorded all of the transgressions Of each of the six nations in chapter one, and now the two nations of Israel in chapter two, and they're the catalog of sins. Now, here's the difference. When the unbelieving world around them sinned, they were offenses to their fellow human beings. Notice in chapter one, if you just look back a page, where it will say, like starting in verse three, for the three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Why? Because you have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. That is, they were rude and inconsiderate and hateful and and cruel to another group of people. That is bad for us as believers. To be offensive to another human being. But that's not what God says. God says that when the people of God, the covenant people of God sin, they don't sin towards their fellow, uh, fellow people, they sin against God himself. Notice what he says in, at the end of verse 7, you do all of this so that my holy name is profaned, I am the offended one. You didn't sin against another sinner, you've now sinned against me, the holy and righteous and just God, because I gave you my commands, I gave you the way you should go and you have chosen not to follow me. And that's even worse. He says, you have profaned my holy name. What he's what he saying is what my parents used to say to me as a teenager. I'd be running out the door, and my parents would remind me of two truths. Number one, son, you're a Christian. And number two, you're a badal. Act like it. Whatever you're going to do, whatever your feeble mind is thinking, Whatever you're going to listen to with regards to your friends, don't ever let those true truths leave. You're a Christian and you're a badal. And the second one was important. I got the first one that I need to uphold the name of God. But the second one was, listen, if you don't think we'll endorse it, then don't do it. Because we're connected with you, son. Because when people see your name in the paper for this transgression or that transgression, they're going to think we live that way they're going to think that we brought you up that way. And we're jealous for our reputation, so never forget who we are and how we've raised you. This is what God is saying to his people. He's saying, people, when you sin, you don't just ruin your name, you ruin, God says, my name. Because when the world sees... A Christian fall to sin. They don't just say, oh, it's too bad Tim fell to sin. He's like everybody else. No, you know what they say? Wait a minute, isn't Tim a Christian? Isn't Tim a follower of this God? What kind of God allows a person to live so hypocritically? What allows a God... To preach one day, one thing through this guy, and then he lives another way. You see, when we sin, we are profaning not our own name alone, but profaning the holy name of God. We are telling people something about our God that isn't true. We are false advertising about our God, and as a result, people are assuming things about our God that are just not true. So let's, let me ask you to do some soul searching this morning. What ways are you profaning the holy name of God? Now we could look through this text and say, my goodness, these are really ugly things. I don't do that. Well, if you were to look deeper into these things, we turn away from the needs of those around us. We involve ourselves in immorality all the time. And we are drunk on our living instead of the living that God has called us to. But what, what area do you struggle with this morning? That if the world around you was aware of it, maybe they have no idea about it, that you wouldn't want it to be placed on God. We have a technology contract for our boys. It's, it's great, man. No lawyer can work through it. It's like four pages long. This is what they can and can't do as, as kids in the Bedal house with regards to technology. And one of them says, and I, I think it's great um, with regards to internet searching, don't be searching anything that your grandma Michelle and grandma Judy would be embarrassed to see you looking at. I love that line. Don't go there. Let me ask you, what would embarrass your God? What would embarrass your God with regards to your life? Don't look at the sins of the world and say, well, at least I'm not doing that. Ask the question, as a child of God, what sins in my life might embarrass my God that he would say, yeah, that he's with me? We've got some work to do. Now, how do we eliminate these things? There's three things. It's as easy as A, B, C, all right? Number one, we have to acknowledge that we're falling to these things, It does you no good in fighting sin if you will not acknowledge, I'm a sinner. One thing I love about AA meetings is that you can't say a conversation, you can't talk until you've said, hi, my name's Tim and I'm an alcoholic. It's important for us to acknowledge the sin that has us so easily entangled. And if you can't get there and acknowledge it before God and hopefully before a trusted individual around you, you'll never get beyond it because you're living in denial. Acknowledge whatever that sin is to the Lord. Number two, believe, believe that God has something better for you. Whatever you're grabbing a hold of, whatever you're pursuing, God has an alternative for you that's far better for you, that will fill you with joy and peace and all that you need. But do you believe that? As I grow older in my life, and, and hopefully more mature in my walk with God, I'm constantly asking that question. Lord, do you want me eating out of the garbage dumpster here? Or do you have a feast for me somewhere else? Because this year, I'm hungry, I have appetites, and the world's offering this. So God, before I go into this, I'm going to ask the question, what are you offering me? And what is the world offering me? And what I've come to realize is what God's got before me is a seven course dinner in His time, in His way. And He says, wait for it, or come and be a part of it. Or I can go into the dumpster of what the world is offering. I'm hungry. Both will fill me, but one will fill me in a way that will give great satisfaction. We need to recognize number three, is C, commit to do God's will and not your own. I'm not going there, God. I'm not going to do those things because you've got something better for me. So I'm going to commit each and every day to pursue what you want, your will, your plan. And in doing so, I begin to eliminate the things that trip us up. And we begin to learn of the example from Amos chapter 2, not to fall prey to the things that are out before us. Let's look at the third and fourth one quickly. Expecting God's discipline when you rebelled. Look at verses 13 through 16. Uh, The equation is simple. Verses 4 through 8. Men and women, you sin repeatedly. And God waits patiently for repentance, but time will inevitably run out. In verse 13 through 16 is the outcome. God will deal with us. Now here is where we're reading other people's mail. Because what's going to happen is God is going to cut off the people. And he's going to take away all that they have, never to have it again in their lifetime. That is different in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Because here's what we know. John, one, uh, 1 John 1, nine tells us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God says, enough is enough. I'm not revoking my punishment. It's too late. The joy that you and I have as New Testament believers because of the blood of Jesus Christ is it is never too late. It's never too late. So run to God, fall at His feet, and tell Him, I'm sorry for my sins. Now, does that mean God won't discipline us? No, He does. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 says that God disciplines those he loves, just like an earthly father or mother disciplines their children. For what reason? There are three. Number one, to humble us. He says he will press us down in our place. Number two, he will at times bring us futility. God is at work, and this is what is being said. James says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You're wondering why life isn't where it should be? You're wondering why nothing is working out the way that you want it to? Have you ever asked the question, is God opposing me? Am I holding on to sins and holding on to things that God wants me to release? Maybe God in his discipline has brought futility to your life. And finally, he brings things in your life to cause you to fear him. Storms and tribulations. Have you wondered maybe why you're experiencing the hardship, the difficulties, the struggles, the storms. You can't just simply say well just it's happening and there's no reason. Sometimes God's brings storms, pestilence and, and all kinds of difficulties in the life of his people is to scare the living daylights out of them so they run back to him. So they run to his embrace, so they run into his arms. God's doing these things to humble us so that we won't continue to go on rebelling against him. But here's the great truth that the New Testament reminds us of. Maybe today you have gone off and you've rebelled against God and you're like, well, I, now all I have is judgment coming. Well, that may be the case. But here's the great equalizer. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us the story that God is, is like a father who has a son who runs off and rebels and wastes his life and and finds himself at the end of his life with nothing to do and he runs back to God. And does God say, no, get out of here, you had your chance? No, the scripture tells us in the story of the prodigal son that God the father runs to the rebellious son and puts his arms around him, not to strangle him, but to embrace him. He tells his servants, let's throw a party for that which was lost is now found." Yes, we rebel, but God's discipline is there, but never forget the love of God in the discipline He has for us. Finally, we need to express thanks that God is faithful even when we're not. Rewind back to verses 9 through 11. I don't have much time here, and Amos is going to talk about this in the days to come. But one of the reasons why God is so upset, God is so angry with His people, is God has been faithful to them the whole while. He's been faithful. And he says all of these things, notice 9 through 11, wasn't I the one who destroyed the Amorites? Wasn't I the one who brought you out of Egypt? Wasn't I the one, in verse 11, that raised up some of yours to be prophets and Nazarites, the spiritual leaders of the nation? Three things God says, I did. I did these three things, generation upon generation. And while I was faithful, you have been faithless. And so if we want to make sure we don't fall into a spiritual free fall, we need to express gratitude that we have a faithful God whose mercies are new each and every morning. We serve a loving God. Amidst this judgment and condemnation, we serve a patient and loving God who's compassionate, who though we are faithless, gave us a new day. Though we are faithless and we shake our fists at God, He gives us breath and life and all that we need, who allows us to inhabit His planet and His world, who gives us joys unspeakable, And all that he asks is that we would stop and say thank you. And that we would recognize that it is the greatest honor of every human being to live like that God and to live in the ways that he has commanded us to. You see, when we see God for who he is, a compassionate, merciful God who gives us opportunity upon opportunity, but who one day will say enough is enough, when we recognize that God, we'll live differently. We'll live soberly. We won't allow those pesky temptations to remain in our lives. We won't allow the Word of God to fall on deaf ears. We will do things differently because we don't have any other choice. We have no other choice. So if you are rebelling against God, you have no other choice because God's judgment is coming. And beware, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so turn to Him. Repent of your sins. And pursue the life that God wants us to have. Because he has shown his faithfulness again and again and again. And he will continue to all the days of our life.